0: This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Richard Holloway and it's an enormous pleasure to chair uh, the event this evening. Um, This is how it's going to go. I'll introduce our speaker. Um, He will then do a reading from his memoir. We'll have a a wee blether with each other. Um, There'll be a question and answer session and then I'll take him next door to sign books and I hope you'll all queue up and buy one. And will you please let us get out first um, (laughs) so that we don't get suffocated in the crush?
2: That's you told. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Damien Barr has been a journalist for more than 10 years, writing mainly for The Times, but also for The Independent, the FT, and other papers. He's also written radio plays, and he hosts the famous literary salon in Shoreditch House in East London. He comes from Lanarkshire, but he now lives in Brighton. And we're here to discuss his, his fabulous memoir, Maggie and Me. So please welcome Damien Barr back to Scotland and to the book festival.
2: Uh, Thank you, you, Richard. This lectern seems very low. Um, One day they'll make a lectern for tall people. I I just sort of feel like I'm down here. Um, These lights are quite bright. I sort of slightly, slightly feel like I'm on a on a stage at a strip show, but um, anyway, I'm going to be bearing more of my, more of my soul than my body tonight. Um, I'm going to share a couple of bits from, from my book, which some of you will, will have read, so I hope it's not too boring for you, the ones who have read it, but the ones who haven't, um, I'm going to do three bits, I think, or maybe four. Um, I'm going to read the introduction and a bit about some of the main characters, and it feels funny calling them characters, because um, they're actually my relatives, um, <laughs> but it makes it easier to talk about them. Um, Anyway, this is the introduction and each, each bit of the book starts with a quote from Thatcher because whether you love her or whether you hate her, um, she did give very good quotes. And this is, Britain needs an iron lady, she says in the introduction. It's the 12th of October, 1984. I'm just eight years old. Me and my mum are stuck to the BBC 9 o'clock news in this strange new flat. We sit cross-legged on bare floorboards with coats for cushions and watch ambulances, police cars and fire engines, me-maw, me-maw, in black and white on the portable, balancing on top of a tea chest. A flurry of dusty black bits fluttered out when I helped my mum turn it upside down and I thought tea only came in bags until this morning when the removal van came to take us to flat one, number one, Magdalen Drive, Carfin. My dad is back at number 25, Ardgar Place, Newark Hill, with the big colour telly. My wee sister, Teenie, has cried herself to sleep in my mum's lap. Our old life is crammed in the cardboard boxes, bursting all around us. It's way past my bedtime, but rules are already being broken. My mum lifts an arm so I can snuggle in. She lights a regal cigarette and shakes her head at the telly, tutting and pulling me closer. I can't get close enough. Blue smoke cloaks us. Luck of the devil, she huffs, puffing away at the telly where this blonde woman rises from rubble again and again like a cyberman off Doctor Who. (laughs) All around her, the hotel is collapsing as bloody bodies are pulled out, but she stays calm. She's talking to the BBC with a man's voice, and even the police stop to listen. Life must go on as usual, she insists, as if life will do exactly what she tells it. Shit, Disney burn, Maggie won't, says my mum, smoking at the portable, (laughs) puffing extra fast, super deep like it's a race. I look up at her with questioning eyes. We shouldn't be here. He doesn't like them. Cancer sticks, he calls them, she confides, smoothing my sister's blonde, bobbed hair with her free hand, her nails chewed to nothing. He is Logan, and according to all the arguments I've overheard, he's the man my mum is leaving my dad for. Right now he's asleep in the next room because plumbers start early. We're not to wake him. He was waiting for us in the empty flat when we arrived with all our boxes. Not as tall as my dad, but not as short as my mum. He stood totally still, filling every room so we could hardly breathe. Without a word, he handed her a key, then pushed his face into hers. The Wains, she whispered, blushing and shuffling. He looked down at Teeny, then me, his mouth open, lips red like the inside of a cut. I held her hand tight and all the lines round everything sharpened. I breathed right in. So I see, he said, slowly, before whipping a Stanley knife from the pocket of his blue boiler suit and slashing the top of a box. I'm Logan. The telly was first to get unpacked The news was already on when Logan plugged it in He thumped it hard just once And the picture picture cleared to show Maggie Walking away from the bombed hotel He shook his head and changed the channel But there she was again (laughs) Nine hours of unpacking later And the news is still on And Maggie is still not dead He can't believe it Neither can my mum They hate her and they say she hates Scotland Hates us But all the people on the BBC seem glad she made it Secretly, I am too. I don't want to see her dead. I don't know why, maybe just because everybody else does. She's not done anything to me. I'd like to brush the dust from her big blonde hair like she's a girl's world and tell her it'll all be alright. Of course, I can't admit this. Bitch, I say, the worst word I know, and flinch for a scalp. But my mum says nothing, not even a, God forgive you. So I'm allowed to swear about Maggie. That's how bad she is. (laughs) My mum takes one last puff. I don't want her to go and sleep in that bed with him. I close my eyes as she drops her cigarette, hissing into the dregs of a cuppa, and imagine celebrating Maggie's miraculous escape with the shiny, rich-looking people on the telly. The Grand Hotel survives. So does Maggie. So will I. Um, it's, really, it's really nice to have an audience where I can read the bit where I say the Waynes, because if you read that in Surrey, they think, well, his name's not Wayne. <laughs> He's made a mistake right there, I can see right from the very outset. Very confusing. <laughs> in fact, there's, there's an incident later in the book um, where, where, um, where I have to call Childline for va- various reasons. And uh, anyway, uh, I call 0800 1111 thinking, quite honestly, that I'm going to get straight through to Esther Vanson. Um, and I got through to one of the well-meaning women of Surrey. Um, and I was explaining to them about my mum and saying what, you know, what she said about the Waynes. And she, just, she, she said, but why does your mum call you Wayne? Why? <laughs> well. Anyway, so here's, here's somebody else in the book, um, this is um, my, my, I mentioned at the beginning there my mum's partner, Logan, and this is my, my dad's partner, um, Mary, and this is how this chapter starts. Being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't.
3: <laughs>
2: Mary the Canary lives in a cloud of perfume and colours. She's an auxiliary nurse by day and a country and western singer by night.
4: <laughs>
2: Bed pans and power ballads. She is the other woman and I'm being trained to hate her even though I've never met her. My mum, my Auntie Louisa and my Granny Mac can't stop talking about Rosemary Murray, Mary the Canary. She's been spotted coming and going from 25 Argar Place by Lena next door and new furniture has been delivered. She's the lipstick, cat-nailed everything my mum is not. My mum's never worn a skirt, but Mary is never seen in trousers, never mind the tight snow wash jeans my mum loves. Her feet are always crammed into what my Granny Mac calls helter-skelters, five-inch heels that boost her to all of five-foot-five. It's like her legs were made for standing on and being admired. Her ash blonde curls glistening with L-net hover a further five inches above her head. I'm dying to meet this dolly bird, gripped by her glamour, but I can't let on. Bottle blonde, my mum huffs, furiously bleaching the inside of a teapot that we'll all taste later. Pound shop Dolly Parton, midden, whore's handbag, she curses into the suds before shushing me for asking what a whore is.
5: <laughs>
2: Again, no translation needed for this audience. I think so. so we get to my dad's, my dad's house as it now is. There's somebody I want you to meet, says my dad, standing my sister down. Like Jack's magic beanstalk, Teeny tendrils herself around his leg, her head just by his knee. I'm looking around the scullery, and it's cleaner than it's been since my mum left, but not as clean as she likes it. There are new things on the bunker, parmesan cheese, salad cream and coleslaw, fancy things my mum passes by in the fine fair. There's a big round mirror where the corkboard with dentist's appointment goes. I'm taking all this in when she appears. I'm Mary, she says, and it's like a film just started in my head. Her hair is the blondest and biggest I've ever seen, bigger than Maggie's even. Teeny is still clinging to my dad's leg, so I extend one hand for both of us. Her nails reach me before the rest of her fingers, and I wonder how she peels tatties. Well... Aren't we the little gent, she says, flashing Bambi eyes at my dad, and from somewhere inside her, a tiny laugh escapes, and it reaches me on a powerful waft of perfume I've never smelled before. I will just uh, interject to say that it took me years to work out what that perfume actually was, and um, I smelled it in the street about five or six years ago, and I went up to the lady who was wearing it and asked her what it was. Does anybody know what it was? Can you guess? Poison. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... Come on through, she says, like we don't live there anymore, and I realise we don't. Our living room has gone. All that's left from before is Charlie sitting on the swing in his cage. I dash over to make sure it's really him, that he's not been replaced by another lesser canary, and I know it's still him because he smiles at me. (laughs) We're in this together, I tell him telepathically. My sister is now standing on my dad's foot, so he swings her through on his leg. She's not said a word, but doesn't need to. A tubular chrome dining table with a smoked glass top and six seats around it gleams where the old wooden fold-out stood. Who is going to sit there? Gone is the brown and orange three-piece suite and glowing anew is white leatherette with steel inlaid arms that promise to feel cold against your arms and legs. The walls are white, white, white. The psychedelic carpet and the orange rug, the shape and colour of the sun, are nowhere to be seen. We appear to be wading through a pool of blood. The care pit announces Mary proudly. (laughs) It's American shadow. It matches my nails. It's very 80s. Your daddy loves it, don't you, Glenn? I flinch, hearing my dad's name used. Mary makes us wash our hands as if our mum didn't teach us and sits us all down at the table before cramming her nails into oven gloves to rescue a bubbling dish, which she plonks on a placemat, another new thing. Strings of cheese stretched from dish to plate as Mary serves my dad, then me, then Teeny. She then shakes something that smells like feet, over my plate, <laughs> it's Parmesan. She says in a take your medicine tone for your less agony. <laughs> <sighs> Terrible to laugh at your own jokes. It's so vulgar. <laughs> it's funny Last like a girl, in agony like one half of Cagney and Lacey. <laughs> After a few minutes, she asks if we like Nouvelle Cuisine and we nod because it really does beat watery tatties and greasy mints. My mum loves us, but she doesn't love cooking and cooking really doesn't love her. Mary finishes her tiny portion of lasagne and gets up to put an LP on the new stereo unit. My coat of many colours, she trills in time with Dolly Parton and Charlie hops from Perch to Perch. When we're sure she's going to sing the whole song, we all stop eating to watch and she takes to a stage only she can see. My dad can't take his eyes off her, none of us can. She finishes right along with Dolly, and while the record crackles round to the next song, we cannot help but clap our hands, even Teeny. Next up, it's nine to five, and Charlie sings too, and Mary grabs my dad, and they're dancing. He never danced with my mum, not even when she threatened to jump on his two left feet, and here he is, dancing with this Mary, and he's rubbish, and I'm mortified, but I want to dance too, and then Teeny gets up, and we're all out of breath, and our lasagne must be cold. When the next song starts, Dolly is spelling out a word, letter by letter, like my mum taught me on the floor of this very room with her mills and boons. I'm the best reader in the class and I've got my library card already, (laughs) D-I-V-O. And my mind is racing to the end of the word that Mary and Dolly are singing when my dad shouts, Mary, and nearly hits her as he lunges at the stereo, pushing the arm off the record just as Dolly says, (laughs) R-C-E. Um, And so that was Mary the Canary, and now I'm going to introduce you to uh, a boy called Mark. and the, the start of this chapter, which is not particularly relevant to Mark, but I'll, I'll read it for you anyway, is another quote from Thatcher talking to STV. And she says, I'm very much aware of the importance of Ravenscraig to Scotland, to Scottish jobs. And the a way, it is more than to Scottish jobs, it's to Scottish morale. I know that. There is a Scottish dimension as well as a steel dimension. I will never forget what Ravenscraig did and the way it stood and the way it carried on during the coal miner strike. Evidently she did, but there we are. Mark Ellison changes my life just before the summer holiday at the end of primary five. He joins Care Memorial School, Care Hardy Memorial Primary School at the end of term. His Jason Donovan haircut neat and new when we're all ready for a sheer. There's usually a space next to me so that's where he sits and my report card for that year states, Damien has met his match. After five minutes we find out we're the same age almost to the day. We're summer babies which makes us the youngest in our year. Her parents went to school together, leaving as soon as they were 16, then marrying and splitting at about the same time. Dads don't get custody, so Mark went to stay down south with his mum and her fancy man, but she sent him back. Her loss, he says, flicking his fringe (laughs) out of his eyes with a jerk of his head. My gain. Mark is the fastest runner in the whole school. He's Sebastian Coe and Steve Ovett. His arms and legs are cartoon blurry as he finishes as he passes the finishing line with enough time to laugh at the stragglers, me included. And he's funny, like me. You'll cut yourselves with those tongues of yours, warns Mrs Rayson, as we're told off for giggling. For the final two years at Keir Hardie Memorial Primary School, we must all endure BAGA, the British Amateur Gymnastics Association exams. Mark is the only boy to attain level one. He flick flax across the gym, which once felt huge but now feels wee, and walks back on his hands, pulling faces the whole time. It's like he's made of the elastic bands that the girls tie together and stretch between their legs to play their complicated games. I never get past level five, the forward roll. I'm not naturally clumsy, but I've learnt to be. Nobody expects the lanky asthmatic Jesse to be athletic, and I don't disappoint tripping over mats and nearly hanging myself on the ropes. This way, nobody asks questions about the bruises and black eyes. Once Mr Baker kept me back and asked if everything was all right at home. And I was going to tell him everything, but I panicked and told him a long, lovely lie about going fishing with my dad. From day one, everybody loves Mark. Boys want him on their team, and girls want to comb his hair. Nobody knows why he's my pal, not even me. He's clever and pretty and cheeky, and the teachers love him too. He, dances, he dazzles with his front crawl when we start swimming lessons at the council ool. There is no P in our ool. Please keep it that way, warns the sign on the way in. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the lengthy rules also forbids something, forbid something called heavy petting, and we snigger at the smoochie illustration. Only Mark dares to dive from the highboard 12 feet up. He climbs the ladder up and up and then down into the deep end he drops again and again. I close my eyes as he bullets through the surface, making billions of tiny bubbles. Behind his, eye, behind his goggles, his eyes are open. He is without fear. It's like he doesn't care. Me and Brian Southlands are the last two learners left at the shallow end. Even Spazzy Leanne Smith and Fatty Moira Gardner have mastered the required single breath of breaststroke. They're all down the deep end throwing their armbands at us making chicken noises. <laughs> so I attempt a Mark-style dive from the side, right on top of Brian. I clacks and sounds but we don't hear it and red-shorted, red-shorted lifeguards fishes out with long-handled nets and I wish the mouth-to-mouth would go on forever. When I wake up, I see Mark looking anxiously at me. Within weeks, we discover heavy petting. It's like what I did down the sippy with Kev. Only Mark admits he enjoys it too and doesn't put me in a headlock after. Primary five is soon over and summer is here. For the first time since my mum and dad divorced, I'm excited about the holidays. I've got a pal. (laughs) Thank you very much.
1: Oh dear. Um, <laughs> let, let's get rid of Maggie first. Um, Turn be done. While you were growing up, she was laying siege to the to, to the industry of Scotland, a potent hate figure. And yet, you she was also an inspiration. And she actually sent you a gift because she died
2: just as your book was coming out. She did. It's the and most generous thing she's ever done. Yeah. <laughs> they actually brought the book forward a fortnight. Oh, yeah, they did a wee bit, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, in America, it was out the next day where they, where they care less. So. I know. Well, tell us about why you called it Maggie and me? Well, she, I mean, for anybody who was, who's, whether you were growing up in the 80s or whether you were already an, an adult in the 80s, um, you know, she was omnipresent, I think, like, it's hard for a politician to be today. She was on the telly all the time, I think she actually created Channel 4 just so that she could have another channel to appear on, mm-hmm. um, she was in every newspaper, um, and she was talked about in my house a lot, I mean, she was blamed for every single thing that went wrong, um, you know, practically the weather, but I mean, she really was invoked. Um, as a bogey woman, if you didn't do your homework, Maggie would get you. You know, and she was coming to take your dad's job away, and you know, and all these things. And I was fascinated by her because everybody was talking about her. I think that makes somebody mm-hmm. interesting—that kind of mongoose cobra-like fascination. Um, but also, um, you know, that, that made her, that made her interesting. Every, everybody hated, her and I felt sorry for her because everybody hated her as a child. I didn't know what she was doing. Um, and the impact that it was having. Um, so I just kind of felt sorry for this woman that they all hated without really being able to understand why it was that they hated her. Um, my dad worked in the Ravenscraig Steelworks, um, which is actually, which is here on the back of the book. That is actually the Ravenscraig. And this, this, this mm, here mm. Is, um, is a wreath that was put on the, the, the gates of the Ravenscraig Steelworks. Um, and to me, growing up, um, I I thought that it was beautiful and I thought that it was a good thing. You know, we had this second sunset every night when I was growing up and it would be heralded by this noise like God had emptied his cutlery drawer out onto the Mm -hmm. scullery floor (coughs) and then the sky would go orange and white and, you know, you could read by it. It was that Mm. bright and that was the second sunset that we got and that, I used to think, was my dad and making that happen and that was the the furnaces being emptied. Um, You know, so I had a sort of quite romantic view of it and it was only as I got older and I heard other stories about it um, about women burying empty coffins, um, my dad having to take some time off work because of, because of stress, because of a, an accident that he'd seen where somebody had been, had been pulled from, basically, from molten, molten steel the, and the burns had kept going. And even though they were in hospital, the burns kept going. And I just had this vision of a kind of screaming mouth that would be Mm -hmm. all that was left of Mm -hmm. this man. And it terrified me. And so in actual fact, when she finally did close the steelworks, I was secretly glad. Because I thought, selfishly, I think as most children are, my dad would be all right. You know, so it was a kind Mm -hmm. of, and I think that embodies the sort of conflict that I have. Because I think it's too easy to love her. I think it's too easy to hate her. The truth for me is somewhere in between. Mm. I believed her when she said that if the Ravenscraig became the most efficient steelworks in the world, and you know, and, and, and the, the men there worked incredibly hard. And I say men because it was mostly men. The women who were there worked in the canteen for the most part. Um, but the, the, and 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 the the men worked hard, and they did, and they made it that. And then it was closed anyway, and that was this horrible betrayal. Um, and that was one of the things that I think mm-hmm. really turned me against it. But, you know, stuff like people talk about privatisation. That's a very abstract concept. What does privatisation mean as a child didn't mean anything to me. I wrote a story about Maggie Thatcher where I envisaged her as a Dalek saying you will be privatised and I had no idea <laughs> what it meant as a child. Um, and um, and what, it, what it actually meant was that, um, that, that, you, that you had a gas meter and that the money went up for the gas meter and more 50p had to be found to put in the gas meter. And if you couldn't find the 50p, you were cold. Yeah. And that is mm. what privatisation meant to me as a child. Not money from shares, but that. And so I just really wanted to, 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 to tell that, to, to share that reality with people who maybe didn't understand that that's what they were voting for when they voted for it. I didn't want to make a political point. I just wanted to tell a Story. Mm. It's, it, it's
1: not misery lit. It could be uh, classified as that. It's rich, it's funny, it's beautiful as the readings have, but it has a heart of darkness called Logan. Oh. Um, your mother went into hospital, um, leaving the two of you to his mercy, and he was a bastard. Yeah,
2: he and was. You're the first person who's ever said that in an interview. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to talk around it. Yeah, say. yeah. So tell us about that and what he did to you. But, I mean, I think, lo- I mean, first of all, I will say that lots of people in this room will have had experience of having a difficult childhood or an abusive childhood that might be a bastard in, in, in your life. And I think that it's much more common than we, than we think it is. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that's really resonated with me is, is that every day now... I get loads of letters and mm. messages from people telling me about their lives and their childhoods and the things that happened, and I think, God, actually, I was lucky. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I had, my, my, up until the point where my parents divorced, everything was kind of good, you know, we had a kind of good time, it was a nice life. And my mum wasn't well, my mum had a brain haemorrhage and my mum nearly died, and she was taken away to hospital, um, at, to, the, to the Southern General, um, and um, and she was gone, that was it. She was gone for mm. a really long time. And it wasn't, you know, it's, I sort of think now children are encouraged to be part of rehabilitation or it's not, it's not bad for children to see an adult in distress. But very much then, in the early 80s, it was. And we were not allowed to go and see her. Um, and so we didn't see her for a very long time. And we were left with him. Um, and he, he just he hated me. Mm. Um, he hated me for being... Um, not for not being his son um, he hated me because I preferred books to football he hated me for, you know he knew that I was gay long before I did he called mm. me all kinds of names and really it was that that kind of made me twig in a weird way about things because I thought well what is a pussy what is a Jesse what is a poof mm. You know, and I had to go and kind of learn what those words meant so it's not the most positive or enlightened way to find out about your sexuality um, but it was how I found out Um, And he did did hate me, but you know what? It's really... I could spend, and I did spend a long time thinking, what is it about me that has made him behave like this way towards me? But actually, do you know what? It really isn't about me. It's about him. And and, um, I can't rationalise, can't Mm. rationalise that. But he was very violent and he would have these strange rules and the rules would change all the time and you Mm. never knew what you were doing wrong. And I used to walk home from school, I used to walk home from school like this, I'd do two steps forward, I'd do one step back and two Mm. steps forward and Mm. one step. And and I made this 15 minute walk take 45 minutes because Mm. I just didn't want to go back because I just didn't know what was going to happen when I opened the door. Um, And it was genuinely, I mean, it was genuinely terrifying. Mm. And then my mum got out of hospital, um, and she and, and she found out what was happening, um, and you know, and she saved my sister and me. And I haven't mentioned my sister there because actually, he was largely benign towards my sister, and mm. um, and um, when my little brother, his son, was born, he was exactly he was the same towards towards him. Will you have heard about the book? I. I wish I could say that I didn't care. Um, I do care. I imagine he has. And I don't know what he thinks about it. I, kind of, I, mean, I, I don't need him no. to believe it. I don't no. need him to understand it. There is something that happened subsequent to the book that's not in this book that might be in another book um, where I did kind of confront him and some of those issues in my family. And it really is incredible, um, the, you know the power of denial yeah, um, where, yeah. people, where people have done terrible things um, and, beca- and, and they're able to rationalise it to mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, they've not done terrible things to everybody and, and, and you just think, right, you, know, you have to let it go. So mm. I haven't written this book uh, to make a point to anybody um, other than to myself, which is that I can do it. Yeah. Um, I, um, I didn't write it to get even or to make anybody feel bad. Um, so What do your parents make of it?
1: Because they were loving, they, yes, they, they were loved loving. you. yeah, they, they, And you loved them, um, but they let you down. So, I mean, uh, and uh, have they handled it well and said, yes, uh, and somehow it's all come round right
2: this time? Um, well, I mean, I, I love my parents very much, both of them, my mum and my dad, and, and they divorced through no fault of their own. I mean, I had an older sister who died and that was very difficult mm. for them. Um, and they, my dad was sort of fighting to try and keep the Ravens Craig open, you know, he was there all the days and hours, you know, that God sent he was there, my dad, and my mum was not well, so, and and events afterwards, they weren't they just kind of created a space really at the centre of my life where things could happen that were bad and bad things happened and they didn't ever actually do anything, it was just a kind of sort of facilitation. But I did ask my parents for permission before I wrote the book, in the full knowledge that I was going to write it anyway. Um, And um, and my mum mum said, change the names, and my dad said, I'll never talk to you again. Um, And he has a really good track track record of not talking to people again and um and but they're, they're both talking to me and they're both very very loving and they're both very proud and in fact i was up recently in glasgow from for, for, in Lanarkshire for my mum's um 60th birthday and um and my dad was driving me back to the airport i'll just tell a story really quickly so we're driving back to the airport um and we're driving back to the airport along a road that my dad had helped build years ago, as if it needed to be any more metaphorical. (laughs) Um, And we're driving along this road and we go, we go past this graveyard. Mm -hmm. And I say, is that, is that where, um, granny and grandpa are are, are buried? Meaning, meaning his parents. And he just, I continues driving like that. Okay. I said, and so are you still not talking to them? (laughs) Ah! (laughs) No. (laughs)
5: <laughs>
2: and I was like I said but dad you know that they're dead and there's no satisfaction to be derived no. from, they no. don't know you're not talking to them and he was like still he said, he said, if I knew, I must get this right, he said, if I knew uh, then what I knew now, he said, I'd have stopped talking to them a long time before. <laughs> God. And I went, all right, okay. So we continued along, we got towards, we were towards Glasgow by this time, and there's a new road there, um, new to me anyway, new to him certainly as well, and uh, he didn't recognise this bit of the road, so we were on we were a metaphorical and literal, uh, real uh, uncharted territory. And, um, and I said, so speaking of, of things that you don't know, um, I said, have you read my book? Um, and he said, and he's like, no. And I went, OK. I said, well, you don't need to. I said, because there's a lot in there that you don't know. Um, and that, and I, you know, I don't want you to be upset or anything. And he, and he said, and he, went, he turned around and he went, I know what I don't know. <laughs> and, I, and I said, how do you know what you don't know, and he said, because I read it in the Daily Mail.
3: <laughs>
2: it's like, God. And I remembered that it had been serialised, and I'd sent my sister round to the house to say, get the Daily Mail, don't, it's terrible serialisation. And, um, and she'd obviously failed miserably, and, he, and, he, and he'd read it, and he, what he did do was he did say, if I'd known then what I know now, he said, your life would have been different. Aww. And that was a lovely thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, two more uh, questions for me before I throw it out. Um, one of the great things, and it's also a classic Scottish thing, in a sense it was school that saved you. You had some terrific teachers. I did some great. Tell teachers. us about that. Because you did well at school and in a sense it was the place that home should have been but never was.
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I borrow heavily from Tennessee Williams at one point in the book and say I've always relied on the kindness of teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have some very, very good teachers. I had some not great teachers, but I did have some very, very good teachers at primary school um, and also at high school. Um, and um, they, they could see that I, you know, I was bored because I'd read everything, and so they gave me more books, and that was lovely. Um, and they took an interest in me, and they knew, I think, that things weren't right early on, and then as I got older, and I think the thing is is that I was taught to lie about what had happened to me. Excuse me. So I was very effective mm. at keeping secrets. Um, I spent a long time and a lot of energy keeping things secret, making up stories for why things had been the way they were. And um, anyway, and I got to high school, and I had had two particularly good teachers there who are still a part of my life now, and who who I love very much, and who are are in the book. And and when I came out to one of them, she did not take it well um, at all. And it was a real shock. It was the first thing we disagreed about. And I did get a really lovely message from her recently um, saying, I read that. It was very uncomfortable. I hated it. and I'm sorry about the way that I was, but you were the last people to get that reaction from me. Um, so it was nice. Mm-hmm. It's been there've mm-hmm. been unexpected mm-hmm. nice things about writing a memoir where people have got in touch and they've said lovely things. I didn't need her to, I didn't, and it was lovely that she did, but you know, it was unexpected. But great teachers, great librarians as well, um, who encouraged me to read and who mm. gave me all the books mm. that I wanted, because at the end of the day, and I, this is totally, talk about Peaches to the Converted, but you know, books are the cornerstone of empathy. They enable us to um, imagine that we're somebody else and be somebody else. And it was in books that I could see a life for myself beyond the life that I had. Mm and also in a great magazine called Storyteller, which some of you may remember. Um, and um, and, and this, this, this helped, this kind of saved me. Um, and, of course, one of those books was the Bible, you know, the, um, full of great stories. Um, and um, and that, was awful, that gave me some solace as well. Let's, um,
1: let's talk about, I mean, it's a, again, it's a classic, potent mix, uh, and a lot of great artists come out of it. Lanarkshire. Um, you're half Catholic. Your granny was Catholic. I know people, you used to say it's a mixed marriage and people are like, well, you're not yeah, very bright. mixed marriage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, well... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Carfin Grotto. Um, Carfin Grotto, uh, yeah. Catholicism and being gay. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us about that and how you handled all that uh, and bring Mark back into it because you you somehow transcended it and grew through it and integrated it and you've made a work of art out of it. It did him in. So. What was it in you that, that rose through this, this horrible mix of things that could have done you in and made you an unhappy um, man and, and, and it did mark in? So, oh. so, so it, being, being young and gay in Lanarkshire at that
2: time wasn't easy. That is an understatement yeah um, I mean it is to be fair the one thing that Catholics and Protestants could agree on, yeah, um, yeah. was that being gay was quite bad, and yeah. that you were yeah. definitely going to go yeah. to hell um, yeah. and that, that, that was that was not great um, and what, I mean I think what I realized and I talk about this um, in, in the book, there's a kind of moment where, as it is, I sort of break up with Jesus. It's a really emotional moment for me in the book um, and in my life. And what happened was I, would, I prayed to God to make me the same as everybody else. I thought I'm already different enough. I'm tall, I'm lanky, I'm specky, my parents are divorced, my skin is terrible, um, you know, the least you could do is make me straight kind of thing and didn't answer the prayer. Um, I'm pleased now to say. Um, um, But at at, at the time, it really was emotional, and I thought, I want some kind of sign, and it it wasn't forthcoming. But I was rejected by both bits, you know, the church Mm -hmm. and the chapel, um, and that was really sad um, for me. Um, It felt unnecessary, because I thought Jesus was a loving man, and I couldn't understand why these people were so hateful and why they hated me so much. Um, So that was obviously not great, although I will say that my Granny Mac... Um, who is just so Catholic, it's not even true, um, who did actually have her gloss work done for when the Pope came for his visit, <laughs> on the off chance, um, uh, that, that that when I told her, she, and she, she, she said, well, she said, you know, Jesus died on the cross, she said, and this is your cross to bear. <laughs> and I thought, wow, how, how upbeat and positive, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, my, here's my cross, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, so that was very hard. And, and you said, what was it about me? It's like I think the thing, this is where I part company with Thatcherism in that sense. It's like this idea of, it, it is important to be an individual. It really is important to be your own person and to, uh, to, to become the person that you, you don't even know the person mm-hmm. that you can become. So that is important. Um, but we all need to be able to do that. And we can't all do that if we don't all help one another and we don't all share and we don't all listen to one mm-hmm. another. And I think the thing is, is that I, I, I was able to... I had that. I had people who loved me. I had my mum and dad who loved me, even though they were sometimes Cause I had my, my friend Heather who loved me. Um, and I had teachers. And I had... So it's that connectedness. It was other individuals who helped me become the individual that mm-hmm. I am. It's not all about me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, the book should really be called Maggie and Me and Them. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not. It's Maggie and Me. And, and so, so, so it, it was that, I think, ultimately, that, that connectedness to other people. And also... Uh, the love of my parents. I don't think his parents ever. They, they rejected him wholeheartedly when he came up. My mum didn't take it well. My dad didn't take it well. But they came round to it. But his parents did not accept it at all. And in fact, when uh, at his uh, funeral, uh, his stepmom said that she said, "I." She said, "I blame three things for him being in that coffin." She said, "The divorce, Madonna." And you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought brilliant. I'm up there with Madonna. Fantastic. Yeah. Finally, I've made it. Yeah. And, and that, and that, and that was really what that was really what she. she did. But you did spoke
1: think the truth at the funeral.
2: I did because I had to. L- I think this is the thing is that I realised about religion, um, and I realised about that moment was that I, d- I don't know. You don't know. Um, uh, none of us do know what happens when we die. We don't know what comes next, um, but we do know what happens here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that I was going to have to live my life as a gay man boy whatever as I was then um, uh, in in the world mm-hmm. and I was gonna have to deal with that and so that is why very pragmatically I said right this is the life that I'm gonna have for myself now um, and and I don't think he was ever able to, to yeah, you know, don't think he yeah. was ever able ever able to do that mm-hmm. um, and it saddens me that you know to, 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 to this day um, you know, the terrible things like the, the Keep the Claws campaign, and you know yeah, that's a long time yeah, ago now, but yeah. it still has a resonance. And then there was the cover of the Scottish Daily Mail the other day, being vile about the fact that Stonewall are giving these fantastic DVDs to people in, in schools about alternative families, and you just sort of think. Get fuck over yourself. Oh, like, God, get I over know, yourself. Know, and I also, know. why are really religious people so obsessed by sex? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, I know. really I know. dark. They talk about it more than I do. I know. When Norman Tebbett stood up mm. in the House of Lords, he was like, and then this could happen, and this could happen, and I could marry my son, and I just thought, you are dark. <laughs> yes. <That is> dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's dark. It's really yeah. dark.
1: Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah. God bless you. Um, <laughs> 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 Let's have some questions. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a wandering mic, and there's a there's a question there. Can you put your hands up so that I can catch you? Oh yeah. yeah, I want some. They're all men, uh, there must be some <laughs> women with tongues here. So I'm not going to take all men. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, yes. I'm saying nothing.
2: Yeah. Till can end
3: Jamie, do you think the UK should boycott the Olympics in Russia?
2: That's a really good question. Um, I have some perspective on this because I was in Russia last year doing, hosting one of my literary salons. Um, and um, I, was, I was talking about a, st- a story called Flowers for Algernon, which mm-hmm. a woman in the audience... It's just a wonderful story if you've not read it. And a woman in the audience had read it before the, before the fall of the Soviet Empire and after. And she discovered when she read it after that it was longer. Um, and it had been censored. And it made me think about censorship and, and, um, and the freedom to, to, to speak. And at that time, the, the, the law was being debated in, St, in the Duma in St Petersburg and um, I stood up at this event and I, and I said, you know, if this law is passed, this event couldn't happen because as a homosexual, I'm, I'm here giving you propaganda right now. And people couldn't, be, people couldn't believe it. They thought about it in terms of discrimination, but they hadn't thought about it in terms of not being able to interact with other people or meet new people or any of these things. Um, and I said, and on propaganda, you know, I said, I, I went to school for, you know, six years I went to high school. They could not teach me maths. I don't understand how I could teach you to be gay mm. in a short space of time. And people just kind of looked. <laughs> like that, um, but, it, but that, that was then and that was then, and this is now and that law has been passed um, and I think it's a, a, a disgusting, terrible, cowardly dangerous piece of um, legislation and I don't think we should boycott it, what I would really like to do is for our athletes to go there with the blessing of the current government and protest as much as they can within that space and disrupt it I think it's better to be there and be disruptive than it is to, to not be there Okay
3: And um, there's a, as a Lanarkshire man, uh, I can understand that I left when I was I was 22 year old and Lanarkshire was a very macho world. You couldn't reveal yourself. I even had a religious man who thought I could go to a doctor and he'd make me heterosexual. <laughs> but what I want to say is Lanarkshire was very macho, very... A very hot, it was a great place. I grew up there. Hold
1: it near, Eddie. Hold it to your mouth. I, yeah, I yeah.
3: grew up there, and I'm yeah. proud of uh, having grown up there. But I had to get away from it. I, I couldn't, I, I, I had, a, had a terrible childhood in Larkshire and I had to get away from it. And there was a recently there was a report of a, a gay march in Moscow, and there was a young gay man getting kicked. Hell out of. That could have happened in Carfin, Lanarkshire, anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a terrible world. Yeah. I've done well out, so Glad I'm very pleased I left it. For
1: you. Yeah, 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 yeah,
4: yeah. Now, where? Who's next? Yeah, yeah. Hello. Um, my name is John Ball. I'm the chairman of Mother Football Club. Oh. So everything that you wrote about in your book. Um, Uh, It was within yards of our football stadium, and my dad had a corner shop uh, not far from what you're describing. So uh, it was the most enjoyable book, thrilling book, Uh, I could understand every single page of it. Actually Tam Cowan, the writer, uh, I sent him a copy of it, Uh, he's well known in Scotland, he said every time he turned the page he said, I thought I was going to be in the next page. (laughs) Like you, I left very in my teens and went to London and spent most of my time in London. Like you, I've got a house in Brighton, so we've got a lot of similarities. Uh, we go back. When you go back, you've revealed the darkest and the most humorous side. When you go back to Lanarkshire, uh, uh, how how are they reacting to you? Um, Because you've done a most magnificent thing. Uh, It's about you. It's about... uh, Growing up in difficult circumstances, and it's also about Lanarkshire that little bit. I'm just really intrigued because all of us on here have read the book. It's been fascinating, and how is it reacting?
2: Um, Well, that's lovely to hear. (laughs) 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 I am. I, I have. I been back. I have because I went back for my mum's birthday. And what I tell you what happened is something that always happens is that my mum has a really big uh, front window. And what will happen is, is that somebody will go by and look in and see that I'm there. And then somebody else will walk by in short order. And then somebody else will walk by. And then the door will go. Oh, and it's your Damien in. And I had no idea. And um, <laughs> and, um, and and that's what happens. And you end up having this kind of conversation. Do you know? I've not had any. I've not had any. Uh, negative feedback from any of the people who are in the book. I've had lots of people get in touch who I've gone to great lengths to disguise um, <laughs> on Twitter and on Facebook going, oh, look, it's me, I was at school with you, or, you know, oh, God. <laughs> Um, and neighbours and stuff like that. So they, all the people who have taken the, uh, made, made the effort to get in touch have been positive. I wonder if some of the people who haven't got in touch haven't been positive. Um, I am unaware of having been reviewed by the Motherwell Times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shame. I don't know if they've got a books page. They might, they might, they might, they might put it in the small ads at the back, mm-hmm. I don't know, but, but um, I'm, I'm unaware of that. I, I, I think that, to pick up on what Eddie was saying, I, you know, I don't feel, I couldn't go back there um, and live there um, as an out gay man. I think it would be hard to live uh, there uh, with my boyfriend, particularly, um, and also given that he's English, I think that would be ad- an additional provocation—a gay Englishman. Uh, a gay Englishman. <laughs> like I don't know what just works, um, but you know. So I think I think that I think that I think it would be t- to make a serious point. I think it would be very hard. I was—I I don't think I could be there. I don't think it would be safe for me to be there, emotionally um, or physically. But I do think that people are people, um, and it's not mm. all bad. And there are people who live there and live, live, live kind of brave out lives. And you know, I know that when I come out, my parents have to come out and my siblings and my cousins and all the rest of so It's not just me, it's everybody. Um, and I think the more, the more people who do that, you know, the, the, the better, obviously, that is, that is for everybody. I will say about Motherwell, it's quite funny, um, because, I, because I'm, I'm from a mixed marriage, um, I was told when people asked me what team I supported to say Motherwell, because uh, that was safe. <laughs> <laughs> Anything, any other questions? No women?
1: No, you're a man. There's lots, I mean, of, there's I was lots of people. Oh, yeah. OK. Thank
5: you. Um, hi, Damien. Um, this side of the room seems to be very much full of Lanarkshire people, and I'm another one. <laughs> um, I'm, just, I'm interested in how you perceive Lanarkshire has changed over the years. Um, I grew up there about 10 years earlier than you did. Um, mm. I have three boys. I now live in Bride, still in Lanarkshire, and uh-huh. I brought them up to believe um, in tolerance and belief that you know um, a moral attitude to society, and that you know mm. believing that whatever's right for an individual is right for that individual. Um, but I believe there has been some significant change. My mother's from um, Motherwell. I grew up in Hamilton, um, and you've said you've not spent a lot of time there um, in recent years. I've not. What do you think is the best way to change a society like that? Because, you know, very many people here have talked about leaving uh, that area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's very limited things, apart from your amazing book, which I've just started reading. I haven't finished it yet. I'm very much enjoying. How do you change something if not from within? Because my belief is the best way to change it is from within.
2: I, I, I think that you're right. I, I don't disagree with you about that at all. I think that, yeah, yeah. that you know, if ch- change that's imposed from outside is... Is, is not is not change um, it's being told what to do and and people people quite rightly object to that i think the change that's genuine that comes from a community is, is powerful and important i haven't lived there for a long time so i don't know i don't honestly know how it's changed i go back and i'll see my family i go back and it's that kind of weird thing of it having changed i write at the end of the book about how much it had changed in the time that i'd gone back topographically, the roads, these new roads, I'm like, where is the, well, the cake isn't there mm. anymore. Um, mm. and, um, and the Greyhound Stadium at the top of the Bray, that's gone. And then there's this whole new housing estate and all these places that exist in my imagination mm. and my memory have gone. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because I wanted to make people aware of this world that had passed. Mm. Um, because I think it's an important world, and I think it's an interesting world, and I don't think that just because that's where I'm from, it's not a place it should be written about. You know, I think it should be written about. It's worthy, worthy of that. But I, I don't honestly know t- how I can answer your question better than to say, I'm probably not qualified to, because I've, I don't live there, and I've not been there. I'm not scornful of it. I'm not snobby about it. Um, my family are there, and it's the place that shaped me. Um, but I don't think I want to live there.
0: Okay. Jamie, I thought it was the woman next to Thank you very much for this year. talk. Um, man. thank okay. you for your enormous honesty. First of all, I should Can explain. Can't hear one. you. Hold it. I am not from Lanarkshire. Right, OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I come from Bournemouth. Right. Which is one of the great gay you, yeah. places now in, in the whole of England. Mm. And I knew from a very early age about me. I have never, ever, ever come out terrified to do so. Well, you have no. <laughs> I hate to be, I hate to <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have no. <laughs> but my, my question to you really, quite is it follows on very much what you've said. Uh, could you, for the benefit of anyone who is absolutely terrified of this great obstacle that stands in the way of some of us about coming out, could you please explain the benefits of doing so and not doing so, and the benefits of staying in the closet and not doing so.
2: I think it's not about the benefit for other people, it's about the benefit for you. I think that you are not fully yourself if you're concealing a part of yourself from yourself. It's like, imagine you imagine you had this enormous house and you didn't only just use one wing, you used one room and you were cooking over a stove in it. When you had this palatial kitchen and this wonderful dining room and a kitchen garden at the back with double doors that you could go out onto, there's all of this part of yourself that you're not living in. Um, and if you're not living in it, you can't invite other people to come in and share it with you. So that, 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 that's, that's, what I would, that's what I would say do it for you. <laughs>
1: And do it to shame the bigots.
2: Yes. And then shame the bigots. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yes, 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 yes. I never thought I'd buy, I'd say, first of all, I never thought I'd buy a book with Margaret Thatcher on the front. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I'd write one. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that I was a gay teenager in the 1950s, and the way you're writing about the 1980s, there was a lot of stuff about uh, oppression and... Uh, uh, denial and and I, it, I was quite surprised. I thought by the 1980s, surely teenagers, gay teenagers in the 1980s, are going to be much more moving towards liberation and being able to express their sexuality. And that doesn't seem, from your book, doesn't seem to be the case. Can you uh, say whether that's I've got that right?
2: I think well, I think you have got that right. I mean, I spent a, a lot of time uh, feeling afraid that I would be discovered. Um, and that, uh, you know, how, how, how would I give myself away um, by my behaviour, by how I looked, by how I sounded, policed myself um, a lot. And, of course, you know, the age of consent then was was 21, and it's worth mm. bearing in mind that the law decriminalising homosexuality didn't actually change in Scotland until much later than it changed... 1980. In, in 1980, then, yeah. then 1967 yeah. in England. So, mm. you know, it's a different culture. So uh, it was it was illegal, and I really, really thought with just cause, that if I was caught doing something with another boy, I was gonna to go to jail because mm. we knew when we got connected to other gay, other gay people of people who had gone to, to jail, um, where the parents had disapproved of a boyfriend or whatever and said there was no consent and this, that and the next thing. And so actually, genuinely, there was a legal threat that, you know, it sounds, doesn't this sound bizarre saying, I grew up in a time of oppression, but I did? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so a, a South African person uh, read my book um, and wrote to me and said that you know, I reminded him of Nelson Mandela. And I was like, is taking it a bit far, <laughs> um, but, but, but there was, there, you know, it was, there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear, and the fear was justified, the fear was justified because you were going to get a kick in, you were going to get bullied at school, sometimes the teachers would help you, sometimes the teachers wouldn't help you, for the most part they would, sometimes they'd turn a blind eye in one or two cases, but, you know, most, for the most part they'd, they'd help you, and it was, da- it was dangerous, um, and of course then AIDS happened. Um, and that just, made, that just made sexuality all about fear. Um, uh, uh, you know, sex equals death. It wasn't something mm. that was fun. And that's, uh, that's the same for, for straight people as well. I mean, uh, everybody saw the adverts, you know, um, mm. w- and, and I talk about that horrific mortification of watching those adverts in front mm. of my family, mm. thinking they're all looking at me and they mm. think I've got AIDS, mm. you know. Mm. And I remember taking my toothbrush to bed because I thought, well, I don't want anybody using my toothbrush because they're going to get AIDS off it, because I've got AIDS. Mm. and I have a birthmark on my neck, which you probably can't, maybe you can see, but I, I thought that that was some kind of lesion. I'd had it all my life, and I thought that it was some kind of lesion. Kaposi mm. Sako. Exactly, mm. and that, that was how mm. good health mm. education yeah, was yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't forget
1: that the Christian community in Scotland still hasn't got through this particular barrier. Um, so it, it's not surprised if you, were, if you were brought up in that kind of community um, that you'd be very, very wary of coming here. Which is why this amazing young man is a brave young man. And I want you all to thank him for writing this book and for being who he is. And come and buy the book next door. Right, thank
2: you for being here. Thank you all for being here.
0: More podcasts, videos and live
1: recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.